News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, recording solo from Brooklyn on Wednesday afternoon, as Chrissy Greer and Alex Lynn are both on the road. Alex spoke earlier in the week to Emma Whitford of Law 360 about what's happening with the return of New York City's eviction courts mid-pandemic and as the clock runs out on extended unemployment benefits. And I spoke with Eliza Shapiro in the New York Times about what's happening and why with school this fall and how parents, teachers, and others are responding to New York's hybrid plan where students will be in physical classes on some days and online on others with those days to be announced sometime in August. Let's jump right in. I'm Harry Siegel talking on Monday afternoon with Eliza Shapiro of the New York Times, who co-wrote a pair of articles this weekend that I thought were two sides of the same ugly, distressing coin. Big new obstacles for economic recovery, childcare crisis, and I don't want to go back. Many teachers are fearful and angry over pressure to return. Eliza, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And let me just ask, I'm a parent. I'm panicked about the fall and what's going to happen and had a rough end of this year with uh, Zoom school. What is the outlook right now for some sort of orderly plan for reopening in New York and nationally? And can parents bank on the information that they're getting now? Yeah, I think it looks really different in New York pretty much in New York compared to every other big city school district in the country. Like about five minutes ago, we found out that LA and San Diego are going to start their school years remotely. You know, they were supposed to start in a month from now, and now that's going to be Zoom school indefinitely until California gets the virus under control. But, you know, I think New York is actually in a somewhat unique situation because we have the virus largely, not entirely, largely under control here. You know, we're looking at one to two percent positive test back every day. So New York is actually in a position where probably we're one of the cities that can really actually try to see what safe reopening looks like, which obviously a Miami or a Phoenix or even an LA at this point might not be able to. But how reliable is the information that parents are getting now? I mean, it's going to be a long summer. It's July 13th. Many, many things could change. If things start to change in New York and the you know transmission ticks up, I think that the governor and mayor having been stung by their far delayed reopening in, in March, will be extremely cautious about reopening if things are starting to look in the wrong direction. We know that the mayor's plan, which is in-person school one to three days a week for most kids, is entirely contingent upon Cuomo saying, you can actually reopen the schools. And we're not going to know that until the first week of August. And that's going to depend on how the virus is here. So Parents can't really plan around that yet because they don't know which days their kids are going to be in school and which days they're going to be home. But the actual decision about reopening or not in New York is still weeks off. And these one to three days a week, teachers are going to be there five days a week. And this makes me curious, who's going to be teaching these Zoom classes, if anyone? I know Mike Mulgrew has been emphatic with his members that they don't have to be doing synchronous teaching, i.e. live teaching over Zoom. But also, who's going to be watching these teachers' kids, potentially, if this is happening? Completely. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things here, I've been on the phone a lot recently with teachers who are parents, and, you know, they are squeezed in every way. I mean, 
they're scared about going back. I haven't spoken to a single teacher who doesn't have some fear about going back, but they also are enmeshed in the same childcare crisis that every single public school parent in New York City is, and they feel really stuck and trapped, much like many other parents I'm speaking to. I mean, the city is really still working through the numbers. The estimate is that about 20% of teachers are going to get a medical exemption. And those are, I believe, the teachers who are going to be teaching remotely. But we don't know if that number is going to line up with the number of kids who want to be remote full-time. We don't actually know how the group of teachers and the group of kids is going to line up. We don't know if there's going to be enough teachers in buildings because the class sizes are smaller. So there's a lot about the numbers and the math here that we're like really far off from knowing. How many students... How many teachers and then how many staff members and how many schools are there in New York? Okay, so 1.1 million kids, about 1,800 schools, about 75,000 teachers, 10,000, 20,000, you know, tens of thousands of people more. So you're talking about a universe of people. I mean, you're talking about a city of people here that are going to be affected by this. And then, you know, you have 1.1 million kids, so you have well over a million parents who are affected by all of this. So, I mean, I think, obviously, in the last week, we've seen this, that school reopening is the key to everything else in New York. Everything. I mean, the economy, everything rests on there being some kind of school for parents to send their kids to and for parents to be able to actually get back to work. So I don't think there's a bigger issue in the city right now. And you were talking about the lives of, you know, millions of people. And to get granular for a second, and then we'll zoom back, do we know how these plans are going to impact charters? Do we know how busing is going to work? And what do we know about how this is going to work for District 75? Yeah. So District 75, which is the district for kids with the most uh, advanced special needs, I think there's about 20,000 kids or so in District 75. I may be a little off on that, but there's a potentially a silver lining on District 75, which is that these are kids, and I've done a lot of reporting on them, these are kids who really, really have to be in school if there's any way for them to be in school. They have a legal right to busing, I think. Which they do. They do. And also, many of them are supposed to, in normal times, be in school 12 months a year. They don't do summer vacation in the same way. Uh, these are kids for whom being with their teachers and classmates is like an absolutely essential part of their structure and lives. So it may well be that those kids get to go either every other week, five days a week, every other week, or potentially full time. That is because their class sizes are already really, really small because the kids need a lot of support. So that's one thing we still are waiting on details, but those are some of the kids I've been most concerned about and some of the most distraught parents I've spoken to. Charters, kind of a question mark. I mean, Many charters share public school space, are co-located with traditional public school. They will probably operate however the public school in their building is planning. They'll probably have to plan pretty similarly. But then there's another class of charter schools that's in their own space and in private buildings, and they can be much more flexible and act a little bit more like a private school where they can make their own space determinations. And then busing, I mean, we just got the New York State guidelines and regulations for how to reopen safely if we can reopen. And, you know, transportation is on there, but there's not a ton to know. Like, they're going to try to do social distancing and open the windows on buses, but they can't, I don't think they're going to radically expand our bus fleet. Obviously, a lot of kids get to school on the subway, 
the subway now is not so crowded, but then you add a million kids and their parents in September. I mean, you, you know, in New York in a normal summer, all of a sudden when school starts, the subway is considerably more crowded. And part of the reason some people feel safe on the subway now is it's just not very crowded, but that will change. So that's going to be a big question. I, I honestly have no idea how they're going to work around that. And how has this been working Zoom school for the 114,000 students in New York who live in shelters or doubled up in apartments? And what are their expectations from your reporting for next year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really challenging. Again, like it's, it's certainly not for lack of trying on parents' part, on teachers' part. I mean, I've spoken to many, many teachers who are, say they're working longer hours in some cases than they did in schools, if they have particular vulnerable student populations, trying everything you know, trying to get the tech was a months long thing for some families that extended into April or even May for some people. I've spoken to teachers and principals who are doing daily wellness checks with these kids. You know, it's not like, you know, everyone has sort of been left to flail. Everyone's trying. But the problem for those kids and kids in foster care, kids in the child welfare system, all the most vulnerable kids in the city, school is the place where you get your services, period. So the school building goes away and you cannot replicate a lot of that. I mean, obviously, you know, kids can go pick up free lunches at school, but it's so much more than that. So I'm incredibly worried about those kids. I think one really important theme here is that we actually don't know how a lot of kids are doing. We don't know, which is actually one of the scariest parts of this. I've been talking a lot to principals who have a lot of kids who have been in unstable homes and they have, you know, have ACS involved kids. And a lot of what these principals, very confident, very with it principals are saying is like, I don't know as much as I need to know about what's going on with kid X or kid Y because they're not there and I don't see them and I can call and I can check and I can look on zoom, but it's not the same. So I think whenever kids get back in the building, we're going to have this kind of secondary crisis of like, oh my God, this has been going on since March and we had no idea. And we have no idea how many kids that's going to apply to and we have no idea the depth of the crisis, which really frightens me. So can we talk for a minute about where the teachers union is at, both Mike Mulgrew and sort of the different significant factions in it who are looking toward this prospect of reopening? Would you like to just sort of paint the, uh, paint the picture? Sure. Sure. So, I mean, I think Mike Mulgrew, who runs the teachers' union, is a, is a very savvy union leader who is not as radical in some ways as the, you know, the teachers' union in L.A. They had been threatening to strike. I mean, that is almost never on the table here in New York. I think Mulgrew is looking at the city right now and saying, okay, a lot of parents want their kids back. If we have a situation in which the teachers say we won't go and the parents say we need you, that breach between the parents and the teachers could be like a rift that the union can't repair. The union has a ton of power always. A lot of power. This administration has accumulated a lot of power. The public has been very sympathetic to teachers, particularly in the last few years, especially in a liberal city like New York in the face of DeVos and Trump. There's just a lot of public sympathy for teachers. But... If teachers say, we know you need to go back to work and we know your kids need school, but we're not showing up, I think that there will be a huge trust breach and the union needs the parents on their side to have the power that they have. So I think Mulgrew has, as he often does, walked a fine line and I think he's done it pretty effectively. 
he has focused his ire on Trump and the federal government, basically saying, if we don't get more money from Congress this summer, then we can't reopen safely because we're not going to have enough PPE. We're not going to have enough school nurses. We're not going to have enough testing capacity. So instead of saying, my teachers aren't going back, my teachers are scared, he's saying, Trump, Congress, you're on the hook to make this safe for everybody. And we want to reopen, but we need to reopen safely. So it's a more nuanced perspective than some of the other union leaders in big cities in the country. And I think they're basically hoping that if they stick with that, they will not lose the parents in the process. Because, you know, parents are also obviously completely exhausted by being part-time teachers. And the union knows that. And I think they know that there's a lot to lose here if they play it differently. There are, however, many of the most active union teachers I've talked to are really concerned about going back. Some of them are certainly threatening not to go. Some of them are talking about not showing up. Some of them are talking about the things they'd need to see in order to feel safe. The teachers who are the most active are definitely more concerned than Mulgrew is projecting at the moment. But again, that is, those are the most active group of teachers. There are 75,000 teachers. And I've spoken to others who feel that they are they don't want to be martyrs, but they, you know, they're like, I need to see my kids again. I'm really concerned. I want to do this as safely as I can, but I feel a moral obligation to be back in the classroom. So Zoom teaching was pretty much made up on the fly and came off that way, including that little stretch where it wasn't Zoom teaching anymore because they shut off Zoom and they're like, you know, congratulations, yeah. parents learned seven new scheduling things with special logins. Oh, never mind. We're, we're back to Zoom. We're going to start with at least partial remote learning. And the governor said today, you know, if the test rates go up, there's a threshold. We might have to go back to full remote learning. So I know the city scrambled to get devices to students, to get logistics set up and so on. They've had a little time now. Are they doing any real preparation, pedagogic or otherwise, for for what Zoom teaching should be like? So I don't know the answer as well as I should. But that also indicates to me that there's, I mean, the city, in other words, has not announced anything over the last few months about, or, or anything of much substance about, like, here's how we're going to make remote learning better. I think almost everyone can agree that remote learning is a poor substitute for school, really hard for young kids, really hard for kids with disabilities, just really tough. But I, at this moment, do not have a sense of, like, who the czar is on making remote learning better what the team is, what best practices are. What I've found instead in my reporting is there are some schools that have figured out not necessarily how to teach an English class perfectly online, but at least how to support the kids in their school who are most vulnerable, even when they're not in the building. And in some ways, that was really important this spring when New York was in a massive crisis. And there's many, many schools where teachers have died and staff have died and and parents have died. So I've been interested in schools that have basically brought a bunch of social services to bear to prevent kids from falling off the map, which is hugely important, but that doesn't even get to math, English, history, all of that. I mean, I think some teachers have gotten creative and found interesting stuff to do, but I'm not sure that those good examples or shining best practices are necessarily going citywide. And I I need to find out why not if, if the answer is that they're not. One broader concern I've heard expressed from business leaders mostly, but I I think maybe serious, is that you've had all of this flight out of the city. There's going to be effects on the tax base, which is already 
tremendous trouble right now, and this is the federal aid question, and having this prospect of having, say, middle and upper class parents leave the system so that maybe you're better able to do monitoring for the most needy, but instead of having a fully public system where you have these middle class parents often in privileged tracks within it, but who provide cover to have funding services in a sense that this is broadly for all New Yorkers and to end up with a system of last resort like other cities have by the time we're out of this? That's such a good question. I mean, there's a genre of this that's like, oh, I'm moving to East Hampton and enrolling my kids there, right? Even most middle-class public school parents can't do that. But I've certainly heard from people who are not wealthy who are like, is there any way for my kid to get a year of regular school? My kid is seven. He needs to be in school and he needs to get better at reading. Can I go to a New Jersey suburb for a year and rent a house or whatever and make it work? So it's not only, there's a class of people who are wealthy who still send their kids to public school who are just going to have all the options that they want. I've also spoken to some parents who are like, we were all set to go to PSX. And my kid's going to be four and start pre-K. And now I will take any private school that I can. I'm not even looking at the top tier private schools like Dalton. I will take any private school I can because I'm assuming there will be more in-person instruction. So we don't have numbers or trends on that. I mean, that's the problem with a lot of these leaving New York stories are entirely anecdotal. We will know a lot more in the fall, depending how enrollment looks by October. uh, I think mid-October is usually the cutoff date for enrollment. But yeah, I mean, that's a huge problem. I mean, part of the reason that there are many, many bright spots in the school system, and I think overall it has improved, even though, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, even though obviously there are many, many low-performing schools, is that it's a more diverse system than many. Even though it's not particularly diverse, it's a much more diverse system than, than many other in the country, many other districts in the country. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what it's going to mean, but I'm certainly hearing a lot of anecdotes about people being like, I wanted to participate in the public system, and now I'm not sure what my incentive is until there's a vaccine. People may come back after there's a vaccine, but we don't know when that's going to be. Do we have any idea of grading and testing are going to work in the midst of this? Very, very unclear. So all of these kind of big questions about how kids are going to be evaluated, whether there will be changes to the admission structure, because remember, like, there's this huge unanswered question that's sort of gotten lost in the ether, but it's really important. Testing, grading, attendance all went away last year. So we have no idea how many thousands of kids are going to be sorted into competitive middle and high schools. We don't know. I mean, the city's going to have to announce something. But that's a huge unanswered question. And remember, Lots of middle-class families, for better or worse, rely on selective admissions or say they do to keep them in the public school system. But I don't know when we're going to have a makeup standardized test if we're going to. I don't know how grading is going to work. I presume they're going to have to make a new grading system. Again, I mean, they made one for remote learning, which was largely pass-fail. I don't know if that's indefinite. I bet it will be tweaked for the fall. But yeah, we, we really don't know. That kind of stuff is like feels four levels down at this point, which is kind of crazy. And speaking of four levels down, what are the plans and expectations for how social distancing is actually going to work? So, for instance, at the high school level, are kids going to go to multiple classes? Are they going to go only with the same cohort? Or are they just going to sort of go and be in halls at the same time and that sort of thing? And then in the younger grades, like these kids, I speak from experience, they don't always know how to distance. They don't always have basic hygiene skills. And yet, They can be brilliant and occasionally, 
you know, uh, brilliantly terrible. Like, ah, this is the perfect time to cough on everyone. So in practice, and, and I know that this is all hypothetical, but, but how, how much preparation is going into this and how much do we know just about the mechanics of how this is going to work? Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew a lot more. I feel like I know about as much at this point as anyone else does, which is six feet apart, masks, windows open, fix the ventilation systems. I mean, we're going to need a lot more details than that. You know, what, what is happening right now as we speak is that every city principal is probably in their school building right now, looking at every single classroom and library and gym and auditorium and figuring out, like, how do I make it work here? But I think one of the big storylines here, one of the big themes that's not getting enough attention is like, that means about 1,800 individual principals are responsible for executing this kind of impossible plan. So the principals are the instructional leaders, but now they are the logistics managers and program managers of this. And I am still unclear about how much help they're getting. I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about teachers, but it's, it's on principals to figure out where the kids sit, how they sit, how the HVAC works, if the auditorium can be a math class, I mean, we need to recognize that basically every single plan falls to 1,800 individuals here. And I think that is something that is not fully understood. And the Department of Education's central bureaucracy has swelled pretty significantly under this administration. Have they retooled it at all to help principals or otherwise prioritize this set of issues? Not to my knowledge. I could just not know. There's always bureaucratic changes at the DOE, and sometimes they are made public a little after they happen. I mean, I would be shocked if there were not new offices and divisions in the DOE to work on this. And I, you know, would really like to talk to the chancellor soon about that now that the school year is officially over and all that. And it's all reopening all the time. But no, I mean, yeah, it's a massive bureaucracy, and it would definitely be strange if it was not reconfigured at some point in the summer to have a clear czar of this stuff and someone who's responsible for the logistics, someone who's responsible for the pedagogy, someone who's responsible for what happens if a kid gets sick. I mean, we still don't know the plan for that. We don't know. That's one of the most important unknowns. Well, as it's been strange to me since March that we haven't had this and had it like publicly and loudly rolled out, that sort of stuff. Some of this to me has just felt like an exercise in baseline competence and message control. Yes. Yes. And I think one thing I have noticed from the city is I think everybody has sympathy for the fact that we are in an unbelievably unprecedented nightmarish crisis, right? There are no perfect solutions here. However, I think what the city often falls back on is like, well, what do you want us to do? This is so hard. And I think that people expect a lot more from that. I mean, the city government has been battered, but it is very vast. There are a lot of smart, talented people, and there's a lot of humans responsible for making it work. So I think I think there was sympathy in March and April and May for like, oh my God, we just moved the biggest school system in the country online, and there's some learning going on for some kids. I think now people are going to expect a lot more, and I don't know what the city has come up with, because they have, in fact, or they will have by September, had some serious time to uh, figure out how to make it so that kids are not just learning nothing until there's a vaccine. Olaza, thank you so much for taking the time. That was really interesting, and I hope that you'll rejoin FAQ and also Chrissy Greer. It's her birthday today, so I hope she, it's 2.30 now, and she's already drunk. Um, (laughs) And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Happy birthday, Chrissy. 
as if parents didn't have enough to worry about, the 25% of renters who haven't paid since May are getting closer to finding out what happens next as the city's courts slowly return. Emma Whitford covers New York civil courts, and let's listen to her conversation with Alex about what's coming. This is Alex Brooklyn with FAQ, and we got Emma Whitford back on the show, who currently works for Law 360. And Emma is a fantastic New York City reporter that's pretty much in the know on all things. And she's been covering the eviction beat quite regularly since the pandemic began. Hi, Emma. Hey, Alex. How's it going? It's going Pretty good. I mean, you know, we're living in post first wave. So, you know, we'll just see what the world brings to us. But I uh, have felt that it's really important that we keep an eye on what happens with the courts and what happens with local legislation in the days following wave one and especially following the George Floyd protests and how that all kind of comes together it sort of is going to shape the measure of, in my opinion, our nation's greatest city going forward. So last we heard, there was sort of a muddled, odd extension of the eviction moratorium until August 5th. Landlords are confused. Tenants are confused. There's still people who are continuing the rent strikes and have organized their buildings. There are still people facing eviction. What is going on in New York City and New York State as far as evictions go? So this last week, which already feels like last year, after we learned that there was this court-mandated pause on evictions and related proceedings, at least until early August, we were able to confirm from one of the top civil administrative judges in New York City, his name is Anthony Conataro, And he sent a letter to some tenant attorneys late last week, basically saying that the courts are going to resume some in-person trials starting on July 27th, which is really soon. Now, this came as a surprise to attorneys, tenant attorneys specifically. Their understanding was that all eviction-related proceedings were on pause. And what's going to happen is that the courts are going to be scheduling, these are specifically trials, including eviction trials that were calendared and commenced way back before mid-March, so basically before the pandemic hit. So one of the challenges the courts are facing right now is a huge backlog of pre-existing cases that they're trying to get through. And what Judge Canataro said is that attorneys haven't necessarily been cooperating in the court's efforts to resolve these matters virtually in conferences outside of the court. So he's expressed some frustration, honestly, in the last couple of days and basically said, we've got to go back to in-person trials. Um, he's saying it's going to be a limited number. And interestingly, there's been a lot of concern about specifically the Brooklyn Housing Court building at 141 Livingston Street. It's a converted office building. It's really cramped. The elevators are small. So the courts have actually found a building separate at 320 J Street, and they're going to have three courtrooms going starting around July 27th, they say. That's the plan as of right now. And talk to landlord attorneys. They're pleased with this. They say it's refreshing to see these stale matters get taken up again. But the tenant bar, and specifically a couple of unions that represent tenant attorneys, are really up in arms about this. Some of the unions have put out statements saying that they're going to refuse 
to go into court, essentially, if it's not deemed safe. So that has just really ramped up, frankly, the, the drama between the tenant bar and this particular judge. I think our friend David Brand of the Queen's Daily Eagle just tweeted, actually, that he had a scoop that five public defender organizations who threatened to sue the state office court administration in federal court to halt in-person criminal proceedings have filed the lawsuit in Manhattan. Plaintiffs are, I'm just seeing this right now, Legal Aid NYC, Queen's Defenders, Bronx Defenders, Brooklyn Defenders, NYC Defenders, and Neighborhood Defenders Service. Yes. So my understanding with that is that it's specifically about criminal proceedings, which is a track that David has been on really close and has blessed my area of focus. But yeah, I think that would be impacting in-person, non-essential criminal proceedings in New Uh, York, while housing court is is civil. Yeah. But July 27th, eviction proceedings are going to go forward. Yes, that is the plan as of today. What about if the tenant isn't paying rent specifically due to COVID? Is the grace period for like COVID not payment, is that over? No, it's not. And again, we're in like a highly fluid situation. Attorneys will tell me like, come back tomorrow. It might be different. But as we understand to the best of our ability right now, the trials are going to be only cases that were started before the pandemic. So this is older stuff. So obviously, you know, tenants in New York have had issues with paying rent and increases and, you know, maybe nuisance issues or harassment or repair needs, like all that stuff predating the pandemic. Those are the kind of trials that are going to be starting up. So according to Chief Judge Marks, our understanding is that this pause on new eviction proceedings, like anything from the pandemic going forward, is still on hold. Ah, okay. But, you know, for tenant attorneys, they say this raises really similar concerns about going into courtrooms with lots of other people under one roof. And they feel that they haven't had adequate time yet to access court files and like prep their clients. So they still have like very strong pandemic related opposition to this going forward. But the cases I'm talking about now are not the ones that are specifically related to falling behind on your rent during the pandemic. And, you know, the other update that I wanted to be sure to share with you guys is on Friday, a couple New York state legislators announced a new rent cancellation bill. That's Yuli New, who represents Chinatown in the assembly, and then Senator Julia Salazar, who represents Bushwick. And it's a bill that's very supported by this statewide coalition of tenant groups really strong opposition from landlords. But what it would effectively do if they could drum up enough support is it would cancel rent payments for the duration of the pandemic. So like going back to early March, plus an additional three months. And as sort of a nod to landlords, the bill would also create a relief fund that landlords could apply to, to try to get reimbursed for missed rent. But at least the landlord trade associations that I've talked to aren't really buying it. But it is a bill that I know advocates are really proud of and they help draft. And it's kind of like a second stab at rent cancellation in New York after Senator Michael Giannaris' bill faltered a couple months ago. And Giannaris was on this press conference and the point he was making last week was like a couple months ago, 
we were all talking about this pending wave of evictions, but it wasn't really on top of us. And he's saying now it's really here, like it's much closer. And maybe, you know, legislators will take a hint <laughs> and act on this. But yeah, so there are a couple of new developments. And then a thing to always keep in mind that I think landlords and tenants alike are looking at apprehensively is that this extra $600 in federal unemployment benefits expires at the end of July. So people who have been really dependent on that to pay their rent and what have you, that's, that's going to go away. So the consequences of that remain to be seen. But I think it's something that activists are trying to organize around. So other than Julia Salazar and a few other lawmakers trying to enact legislation around rent relief, has there been any other action by Bill de Blasio or Governor Cuomo in order to try and negotiate, alleviate, or come up with some kind of problem solve for the fact that we are facing unemployment that might reach Great Depression numbers, and also with federal aid exiting the picture on July 31st, now is really when we have another like eviction rent not payment wave. Like our first rent not payment wave was when New York went on pause, and our second one is now when people aren't going to be able to pay their rent because they don't have that extra 600 a week. Is there any action being taken preemptively by our electeds. Yeah, you know, I'm going to be showing my current weak spot. I haven't been following Mayor de Blasio as closely recently since so much of housing policy is decided at the state level. I know the mayor was proud of, you know, he had been pushing for a rent freeze for the next couple of years for rent-regulated tenants, of which there are about a million in New York City. So that means, you know, there's slight variations for one- and two-year leases, but current rents are, are pretty much on lock for those tenants in New York City. I think advocates would call that an important but relatively minor victory. And Cuomo, I mean, again, when you talk to housing advocates, the, the rent cancellation bill I'm talking about, which would potentially include a lot of financial re- relief for landlords, would require a huge influx of funding. And what organizers point to is this call to, you know, raise taxes on the billionaires of New York City and really like push that through. That's been, as far as I understand it, more or less a non-starter with Cuomo. Cuomo did recently pass this bill called the Tenant Safe Harbor Act. This means that if you experience like financial distress during the period of the pandemic, your landlord can still bring a case against you, but you cannot be evicted specifically for rent that you weren't able to pay during the pandemic. You know, the pushback from tenants is that the landlord under that bill can still get a money judgment against you. And so that raises concerns about impacting people's credit scores and things like that. But, you know, Cuomo did sign that a couple of weeks ago. So, And I guess the concerns would also be not just credit score, but if you then do become employed, is this the kind of debt that they'll be able to sell to collections? Are your wages going to be garnished? Will it impact your ability to get a job if you have a lien like that on every paycheck? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of questions there as far as like being able to sue tenants for missed rent during COVID. Right. And also like even the groups that like helped write that bill, um, including the Legal Aid Society, they've acknowledged that they see it as sort of a bridge 
to some future influx of rent relief funding. You know, whether that comes from the Fed or the state kind of remains to be seen. But I think the sort of big question mark hovering over all of this is one attorney described it as like, what is it you can't get? milk out of a stone or something like if the money's just not there blood i think it's rent. blood something's gotta give blood out of a stone it's yeah blood exactly it's not milk so it's... there's no money to pay the rent something's just gotta give right uh, i think it's like blood, if you milk. if you give away the milk you can't get the cow for free i that's wrong um don't give the cow away so thank you so much for coming on faq again uh, it's been such a pleasure every time you're covering a particular issue. I'm so happy to be able to invite you on the show and have you explain it. Please come Thanks, back Alex. soon. And I hope you Yeah. And I will see you around campus, the great campus of New York City. <laughs> FAQ. FAQ NYC is hosted at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and recorded this week in Brooklyn. A special thank you to guests Eliza Shapiro of the New York Times and Emma Whitford of Law360, and to Adam Kamara, who mixed and mastered this week's episode. Until next time, wear a mask, be safe.